This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. For more, visit lbj.utexas.edu. Welcome to Policy on Purpose. My name is Angela Evans, and I'm the Dean of the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. My guest today is Ruth Wassum. Ruth is a clinical professor of public policy practice at the LBJ School and has been a colleague of mine for many years. Uh, From our time at the Congressional Research Service to our time here, I found Ruth to be a very thoughtful and thought-provoking analyst and contributor to the public policy debates. Ruth has for many years studied immigration trends, asylum policy, human rights, and unauthorized migration. And I've invited her to join me today to provide insight on the national conversation surrounding DACA and immigration as a whole um, and how it fits into our current public policy discussions. And it can't be more timely since the State of the Union address, uh, the president talked about his four pillars uh, and his pillars being uh, the looking at the path to uh, citizenship for the dreamers. He talked about building a trust for a wall, the construction of a wall, ending the visa lottery, and limiting family reunification. He called these his four pillars. In addition to the president's State of the Union address, um, as everybody who's been following public policy knows, the DACA question came into very high-stake legislation with regard to continuing resolutions and keeping the government funded. So this is really a very important issue right now. And before us today, we have a national expert, and some would consider her the national expert when you're looking at immigration and its intersection with policy. So, Ruth, what I'd like to do today is start, let's just start with DACA. Sure. Um, How significant is a narrow fix to the Immigration and and Nationality Act that enables unauthorized residents who are brought to the United States as children to become legal residents. How narrow is this fix? It is an example where there are numerous historical precedents in which Congress has enacted legislation that allows unauthorized residents to become legal permanent residents. So it is indeed uh, in the wider sweep of changes to the Immigration Nationality Act, it would be a minor change. But for uh, those who are dreamers, it's obviously of critical concern. Their future hangs in the balance on, on this. So while it might not be a major change in U.S. immigration policy, it certainly is something that affects um, the lives of probably over a million people living in the United States today. The president uses 1.8 as the target Mm -hmm. population for DACA. And some people have been talking about, you know, what I'm seeing as the issues swirling around DACA. Most people, when you talk to them, agree that some of these children were brought here without any uh, say in that, Mm -hmm. should be allowed to be citizens, under what conditions they differ in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, the time in the year, you know, time of years, et cetera. But other people also say that there's elements within the DACA population that uh, we need to be aware of and perhaps not allow a carte blanche kind of uh, allowance to have them in, like what the president was talking about with gangs, et cetera, like that. Well, what is your, when you look at the research and when you think about how this has been decided before, what's your take on that? Um, I think that um, we don't need to worry about some of those questions because there is already expansive existing law that bars the admission 
of anyone who has committed a crime, poses a threat to national security, is a public health risk, is likely to be a public charge, go on relief, um, a whole host of things that would bar individuals. So in terms of someone slipping in um, or some kind of blanket relief for people that are unintended, the law already would protect the United States from those things. And also, the research uh, seems to indicate, as best we know, that incidents of disqualifying behavior among uh, potential recipients of this uh, is quite small. Um, so I think that current law can handle it. Uh, it's not a big issue. Okay, so that's important, too, because uh, it, in terms of making decisions, it's based on information, implementation, mm -hmm. regulations, et cetera. So what we're hearing in the public uh, media is like one part of it. But underneath that is a whole set of infrastructure, regulations, statutes uh, that address that. That's what you're saying. And lots of databases that are linked with fingerprints and uh, facial recognition and all sorts of things linked up that now, if you've committed a crime in the United States, the immigration uh, admissions databases, all of those databases are linked to that. You, you're going to pop up right away. Okay. Thanks, Ruth. Thank you. So that's the one that was one of his mm -hmm. uh, uh, President Trump's pillars. Another is the diversity in the visa lottery. You know, when we're talking mm -hmm. about um, the, a lottery versus, you know, another methodology, what are the perceived problems with the diversity lottery now? What's the problem that we're trying to solve there? Well, let me briefly explain the purpose of the lottery. As its name suggests, it's to encourage legal migration from countries other than those countries that are the major sending countries of immigrants. It was originally called New Seed Immigrants. And in its early days, in the 1990s, it was overwhelmingly people from Europe, Ireland, Eastern Europe, countries that had been traditional sending countries but then had not sent immigrants very much. By 2009, the, the people coming in through the visa lottery shifted to be more from African nations and Middle Eastern countries. So who was coming in, who was qualifying for the lottery changed. But I also want to point out is there is a misconception that no one's checking, like they win the lottery and they take the, you know, the next flight into JFK. First off, you have to have a high school degree or its equivalent and two years experience in an occupation that requires two years of experience. So we're already talking about someone with um, uh, skill levels that we don't require uh, many other immigrants coming into the country. So that's one of the expectations. The other, again, very important to point, point out, anyone who uh, qualifies for a diversity visa, if they win the lottery, so to speak, they undergo extensive national security reviews and background checks, first by the Department of State abroad, and then uh, upon their arrival in the United States, they're also run through these background checks by the Department of Homeland Security. You know, there's standards to meet, and there's extensive background checks. My theory behind eliminating it is that it, in the wider world of immigration, which is perceived of as a zero-sum game, that there's a you know a finite number of people that will admit the diversity visa lottery is low-hanging fruit. It's only fifty thousand visas, and because the pool is ever changing, because it's formula-based, based on 
how few visas have come in in past years. Uh, it doesn't build a constituency back home of immigrant groups. If you benefited from it in the past, you're not going to benefit it from it by the future by its very design to be new seed immigrants. So it's low-hanging fruit that's easy to get rid of. But I, I think if you're going to make a case to get rid of the diversity lottery, you should just say, you know, we don't need it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I don't think you need to disparage the people who come in through it. Mm-hmm. So it, at the time that it was uh, enacted, it was a, it was something that was taking care of some kind of problem at that time. And that shift, I want to I want to pursue this a little bit. Okay, I want to talk about why it was even enacted in the first place. It wasn't because we had the wall come down, you know, the wall come down in terms of the Berlin Wall, and we had emerging democracies coming out of Eastern Europe. Was it because the Irish uh, were becoming more and more integrated into the capital and business, uh, you know, creation in the world? I mean, do you know? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Okay. And you have identified the main source countries as part of the logic. In fact, they used to call it the Irish visa because a certain number was set aside for Ireland and also Eastern Europe. And when we get to family-based, you'll you'll see that our current four pillars of U.S. Uh, immigration are family reunification, immigrants with needed skills, protection of refugees, and diversity of admission. Mm-hmm. Okay, diversity of source country. Right. So those are our criteria. And before the diversity lottery was added, the family-based and employment-based um, I used to call him the Billie Holiday. Uh, if you know her famous song, God Bless the Child, Them That's Got Shall Get. So if you if you had a recent immigrant or if you were part of an employment-based uh, recruitment pattern, our system, not by design, but by implementation, just the way it worked, an unintended consequence of when they created the law, it favored the most recent immigrants and their colleagues at work or their family coming in. So it was very difficult for Irish immigrants to come in back uh, during the Troubles and some of that stuff, or Eastern European immigrants to come in because they didn't have immediate family. They might have cousins and more distant relatives to qualify, but they did not have the uh, immediate connections that would have qualified them. The diversity visa, the way it was designed, it opened up these parts of the world again that were underrepresented in our flows, but where there were clearly people that wanted to come. So that was what it was seen as, to try to diversify the flow. Okay. But you said there's a shift now. So we went from those countries to African countries. Right. Uh, and Middle Eastern and countries. And Middle Eastern. Mm-hmm. So uh, is there is there some kind of a connection there with, with regard to the diversity visas trying to take care of some of the refugee issues or? The well, they wouldn't. There's a separate path right. for refugees. Right. I think there, there certainly was recognition uh, on the part of many African-American and Middle Eastern and Northern African-Americans that um, the program lost its support when the flows shifted to other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. So um, that certainly was an issue. And when this came up in 2013, when the Senate was debating this, the Senate bill that, you know, the immigration reform bill that passed the Senate in 13 eliminated the diversity lottery, but had provisions to allow for 
flows of immigrants from, again, from uh, these parts of the world. So it would have uh, aimed at mitigating the racial impact of eliminating the diversity lottery. Oh, I see. Okay. Because well, it was recognized that there's a, a racial side. Mm -hmm. That was part, if you look at the Senate debate. Ruth, um, let's move because we were trying to get a lot. I have your time for a limited amount of time, and I want to pick your brain on a lot of things. So can you talk to us a little bit, too, about family-based immigration, chain migration? What are the policy issues around family-based immigration? Is there a need uh, to reprioritize this and to, you know, to limit it, limit its scope? Well, this has been an issue for some time. Family-based immigrants make up two-thirds of the flow each year of people becoming legal permanent residents. So they dominate. Um, and But it's been a core principle. It dominates by design. Mm -hmm. um, it's been important for over 50 years in the immigration flow, and it's been our top priority to reunite families. And because we have numerical limits on immigration, there are probably 4 million people with approved pending family-based Petitions, you know, they've been approved. They have the demonstrated relationships, but are waiting in line under the numerical limits to come in. So we're in a situation where we have a, have categories of family-based admissions where there are many more people in the world who are eligible and who qualify for a visa than we have set under our numerical limits. So it begs the question. Mm -hmm. Should we be narrowing what we consider family reunification? Mm -hmm. Now, I want to clarify the use of chain migration. Chain migration is a standard demographic term. I used it a lot. I'm, I'm struck by how it is now being used as a pejorative. There's no reason to think it, it, it's a pejorative. If I you know, go on a cruise, meet somebody, we get married, my husband comes with me, and then later, when he's a U.S. citizen, his aged mother comes and lives with us. You know, calling that, you know, like chain migration when it's the nat natural course of life events kind of uh, strikes me as a bit uh, overreactive. But it is, uh, it is true that Cutting back on some of the categories of family-based admissions ha have been on the table for many years. For, so when we talk about categories, talk to We're me. talking about adult brothers and sisters mm -hmm. of U.S. citizens. We're talking about adult married children of U.S. citizens. Mm -hmm. So um, what the Trump administration, I believe, is proposing is to limit family-based admissions to what we call immediate relatives under the law, and that is your minor children, your spouse, and your parents. And any of the other relatives, like, you know, your adult children, would not qualify under this. We don't know that for sure. That's just something yeah, that, right. we, that we've heard. We're presuming it based on yeah. what he said and also taking a look at some of the, the legislation he's admired, like the bill by Tom Cotton and uh, Senator Cotton and yeah. Senator Perdue. Right. You know, the kinds of mm -hmm. things that they would cut out would narrow it down. So it does raise, um, you know, it's a tough question. Yeah. It's a tough question. I'm not going to deny it. Mm -hmm. and it. And I think it is something that's worthy of a serious national discussion. Mm -hmm. Are you 
comfortable with the data that we have on this in terms of numbers, like, you know, part of this of people. Again, this is the popular perception. That's why I want to have this policy. It's called policy on purpose. It's trying <laughs> to get to information and facts. Do we have really good factual information on whether we're bringing in second and third cousins? Are, are most of these... Well, no. I mean, because we know under, we're what not. you're saying is under we the law, you can't. We're not. Right. We're not. I mean, the law is pretty clear about this. Yes. Now, over the course of several generations... The example I gave earlier, I go on a cruise, I marry someone, he becomes a citizen, he petitions for his mother. If she lives here long enough and she becomes a citizen, and so my sister-in-law that is living in Germany, my mother-in-law, who's a U.S. citizen mm -hmm. at by that point in time, could petition for her daughter mm -hmm. in Germany to come in. So that's kind of how it works. But we're talking about a long period of time through our system because, generally speaking, once you're admitted as a legal permanent resident, it's five years before you go through the citizenship process if you if you choose to do that mm -hmm. uh, and pass the tests and do all that. And as I told you before, there are four million people already waiting for visa in the family-based categories. Mm -hmm. So my sister-in-law would have to get to the end of the line. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about something that, if I just got married, is a good 15 years out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I hope she's healthy because <laughs> she won't qualify. So I think that the thing about the numbers is you can do some speculations, but we're not talking about a snap your fingers and everybody's cousins coming in. Yeah, this is like what we're talking about now in terms of you know, we're looking at several of these pillars. So when we're talking about the diversity visa uh, lottery, as you're saying, this really kind of low-hanging fruit, not affecting a lot of people. You're looking at family-based immigration. Again, what you're going to be changing is not all that significant. Oh, no, I think it in is. In terms, oh, it is significant. I think it is. Okay. Because it is the largest single group of who comes into this country and it's foundational to how we've always defined ourselves under family reunification. Right. So changing it. Is, would be a major change and a major shift in the direction of our of our priorities. Okay, so going from an immediate family that some right. people think is a nuclear family rather than an immediate family, you know, when you're thinking about a daughter-in-law if it's a mother or a son-in-law, that's what we're going from, something that we normally think is a family that you're going to put around in Thanksgiving dinner right. versus you're having, you know, a Extended. reunion at a right. mountain lodge or at a city yeah. with cousins. So yeah. those, those are those are kinds of the decisions. The, the thing I really want to talk to you about, get your um, opinion about, is this employment-based admissions would be favored over family-based admissions. You know, it seems like that is what— That would be the shift. That's what it sounds yeah, like from so, what the president's saying, yeah. is shifting uh, priorities away from— Now, in some proposals, they would just cut immigration altogether. Yeah. But then at other times, the president has talked as if he'd be willing to reallocate those numbers that he would cut from family-based over to employment-based, and at the same time— is promoting a, a point-based system. Now, my concern with that, and I think it's something for us to think to think about, is we're shifting then from an immigration priority that pits U.S. citizens mm -hmm. and and who and their family against businesses and and corporations. Um, in terms of who sets immigration policy, are the rights of a citizen to be reunited with their family less than a corporation 
um, and their expectation for uh, certain types of workers. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, this is the, this is uh, there's a lot of minefields yes. in this one. A lot of minefields, and the president and some of his uh, supporters have been talking extensively about shifting it to a point system. You know, this is not a new idea. Point systems were on the table in 1990. And Congress rejected them. In fact, they got morphed into the diversity visa lottery, and that's why the criteria for what you had to do to win the lottery included uh, economic uh, Mm -hmm. skills. And uh, they were on the table in 2006, 2007 when uh, President Bush and, and McCain and Kennedy had their immigration bill. That was one of the reasons that uh, that bill ultimately went down. And, um, and they were rejected again in 2013. One of the reasons that the point system gets rejected is not that it doesn't have some inherent value of thinking. And so I'm fascinated by the point system because it's it's about having um, a conversation and a process to think, okay, what type of immigrants are in our national interest? Who is it that we need? Do we need unskilled uh, laborers um, picking fruit or do we need high-tech biomedical people working in labs? Who is it that we need? And I think that's a good discussion. Mm-hmm. The problem came in is that business, well, it's kind of like family-based. Um, it's who you know. Just like with immigration policy, the family is who you marry or who's your blood relatives. And in business, it's who you want to hire. Our current employment-based system is based on an employer making a decision, having gone through a national and international job search, that this is the person I want to hire. It's a personal choice. So that that whole screening process about our national need, we are giving that to the employer and their best judgment. And employers, generally speaking, do not like a point system, just like uh, the average American wouldn't say, oh, well, we've admitted all the best people from around the world and you can choose your spouse mm-hmm. from this group any more than an employer wants to be told this is the pool from which you can hire. Mm-hmm. It's part of the American DNA. We like to make our own choices. Yes. That, I think that's a very good – I haven't heard it uh, said that way in terms of these comparisons. I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind as we move through this. Uh, so, with, again, uh, I'm trying to respect your time, but there is one more area that ends the four pillars is the wall. And, you know, obviously in Texas, this is important because we have the longest uh, international border in the United States. And this is an important uh, issue for us in Texas as well as nationally. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, that approach, the, the Trump approach to the wall in terms of building a physical wall? The wall, um, I don't understand um why you would argue you know, you got to raise the question why do we need a physical barrier now i think we need major improvements to border security i'm not saying we don't infuse a lot of public money into border security but the first place i would put that is in infrastructure at the ports of entry the infrastructures are dated Everyone who has researched the field of whether you're talking about criminal elements or national security risks, they're not crossing the desert. 
They're coming through ports of entry, and we need to beef them up, not just for our public safety, but for our commerce. Goods and services need to move elegantly and efficiently through our ports of entry, and they are obsolete and dated and vulnerable. That's where the money should go. And if we have money left over, there's all sorts of surveillance techniques, all sorts of, you know, I you know don't want to minimize them by calling them high tech, but there are so many ways to surveil our border. And frankly, when you look at the globe and you look at countries that are peaceful neighbors, We probably already have the most surveilled border in the world. I mean, you have to go to warring countries like India and Pakistan that are at odds or the Koreas to find (laughs) places, you know, ratcheted up to the extent that um, our current president is talking about. So I think, you know, we're the smartest group of people in the world. We can come up with much more sophisticated ways to secure our borders than a physical structure. Thank you, Ruth. Ruth, I, I want to invite you back because this is uh, this is just the beginning. Uh, it's it's not the beginning. Sort of back to the future in a lot of these uh, different provisions. You know, these are recurring issues, and we uh, these struggles are really important struggles. So, um, I hope you'll come back as this moves along in the Congress and moves along in terms of the state of Texas. So, thank you yeah. so much, Ruth. For My pleasure. Coming. Okay, My thank pleasure. you. This is Policy on Purpose a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. To learn more, visit lbj.utexas.edu and follow us on Twitter or Facebook at the LBJ School. Thank you for listening.